Jesus also said to his disciples, a certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called to the manager and said to him, what is it I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig and too proud to beg. I know what I'll do so that when my um, when I'm removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said quickly to him, take down this contract, sit down quickly and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, um, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than people who belong to the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much, and the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly riches, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the, um, hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. So this is Jesus's bewildering parable about how to win friends and influence people. There's a question mark at the end. <laughs> win friends and influence people. Um, and it gives us this vision of pardon and surprise. Almost every commentary that I saw when I was looking for desperate help on this started with some sort of disclaimer that said, um, well, one of them, this was titled in the index as the most difficult parable. Um, another and most also said, beware, or something along the lines of, no one knows what this means. If you pretend like you do, you're probably getting it wrong, and what you are saying might actually be dangerous. So, to summarize, Jesus had just told in Luke 15 his like masterpiece trio about lost things, parables about lost things, sheep, coin, sons, hang it in the Louvre, masterpiece work here. You can't get any better. A certain shepherd, a certain woman, a certain father, each of them working their way through this cycle of losing and finding and then great celebration with neighbors. It's, it's not difficult to see how each of these stories has, has kind of become a, a paradigm, has beautifully shaped our imaginations for what the very best of the Christian faith can be in the losing, in the finding, in the celebrating. But now we come to chapter 16. 
Now there is a, quote, certain rich man. He finds out he's being cheated, so he calls his manager into his office and dresses him down and fires him. First off, I'm not sure a certain rich man is the most sympathetic character uh, for Jesus' audience of like ne'er-do-well fishermen and zealots. So let's start off with that. And the scene he's painting is not pretty. The manager that gets called into the office doesn't seem like he really argues um, the claim that he's shysty, right? Like he, he doesn't dispute that he's shady. He, he just kind of slips straight into full-on grovel mode, you know? He's busted. He says, what am I supposed to do now with my life? I'm stuck. I've, I've been in middle management for so long, I can't go back to flipping burgers. I can't do manual labor because my hands are really soft. And I sure as heck can't panhandle. That would be embarrassing. In fact, I don't really have that many friends because I've been working these spreadsheets so relentlessly that everyone just like kind of avoids me when I show up in public. And if they do see me, if they do hear from me, they just kind of assume that it's probably time to pay up and I'm here to collect. This guy is locked into this world of inevitability and scarcity. Everything in his life seems to be some kind of commodity to be maximized. And everyone that he encounters is either possible investor or a shareholder or a customer or maybe a debtor. I'm sure we would never recognize this sort of world. So he sets out to visit each of his account holders. He, he, he's calling in debt, sorta. And one by one, he starts slashing what they owe. These are, these are big industrial amounts. 450 gallons of olive oil stricken. That is a lot of caprese salad, right? Like 200 bushels of wheat discounted, suddenly off the books. I imagine the folks that he's meeting with kind of incredulous at these encounters. Like, they're like, wait a minute, you're relieving our debt? Like, can you do this? Or is this a scam? This isn't going to come back on me. Hold on, wait, it was that easy the whole time you could just do that? Like, I wonder if it to them feels like this is all funny money, like monopoly money the whole time, right? So press pause here. At this point, you might be thinking, and I was, wow, how come this parable wasn't like, cited favorably a couple weeks ago when student debt was being relieved and is at the top of the headlines. Like this would be a really good supportive parable for forgiving debts. Maybe I can forward this to that one uncle that posts things on Facebook. But then you keep reading <laughs> and it gets a little strange because the dishonest manager is commended for acting quote unquote cleverly. Flag that. <laughs> Very few places in the Bible like talk about cleverness as a virtue or a fruit of the Spirit, right? Sure, wise as servants and innocent as doves and all, but clever connotes like calculating and conniving, like one reaping the maximum utility out of a situation and parlaying loss for personal gain. Clever is good for the people that are working for you, because clever gets results, but clever and trustworthy 
aren't ever really all that much in the same sentence. But it seems like the master is kind of into this. He praises the manager for his dishonesty, all the while kind of undercutting that praise with some strange and kind of severe shade for him. He says, after all, people who belong to the world are more clever in dealing with their peers than people who belong to the light. He seems to be casting him into the darkness, <laughs> even with this kind of, uh, um, kind of uh, positive statement. Fascinating, right? Because this parable seems to, it's, it's starting to kind of fall apart. It's really brittle and unstable. I wonder if the manager is kind of squirming a little bit in his seat, also not knowing where this encounter is going to go. I wonder if the manager is waiting for the other shoe to drop or for like the feds to bust in and raid the place and account for all this money that he's, you know, kind of laundering. <laughs> With each step in this parable, the ice starts to kind of crack and break under our feet. This, the, the master says, I tell you, use my worldly wealth to make friends. What? At this point in reading the parable that you realize that you should probably not forward this parable to that uncle to post on Facebook. That given the last whatever many years of like, publicly shady people and politicians using wealth to make friends and gain influence and seek last minute pardons and such. Maybe we shouldn't read this positively at all. And then the parable swings widely again back to what we might have assumed that it should have been in the first place. Honesty in small things begets honesty in big things. In Spider-Man terms, with great power comes great responsibility. And then serving God and serving mammon are each full-time jobs, so they're incompatible side hustles. We can't do both with integrity. What the heck is going on here? That, that was the summary of what, what I think is going on. But, like, what is really going on here? By the way, this was initially planned to be Natasha's first sermon as Oak Church intern, kind of a hazing ritual she got out. <laughs> but when we read this, who, who represents God? A certain rich man seems to be a good start. Do we really want to envision a God who praises dishonesty? Maybe our next best interpretive option is even something stranger. Is God the dishonest manager? After all, the manager was, quote, wasting his estate, which is the same word that was used in the past chapter for the, the lost son wasting his inheritance. There's a similar dynamic to that story of the prodigal. The, the story jumps straight to death, or at least desperation. There's a better off dead dad and a wasting away son in the one story. There's a fired manager and a, a slighted boss in the next. Maybe, maybe, maybe our answer, our interpretation could be some mixture of the two. That God could be both the boss and the manager. You see, parables don't really play by the rules. And in telling them, Jesus isn't really playing by the rules. These parables should bug us and 
bust something open in our imaginations. They're meant to be like purposefully opaque and frustrating. They require us to do legwork, like exhausting all the options and not being really satisfied with any, but somehow knowing God and ourselves and our world better for it. In the same way, the prodigal story leaves us wondering who is representing God. Right when you think it's the father waiting on the porch with the light on, there's also that pesky like idea that Jesus might just be that that son sent to the far country to be with sinners. Or you might ask, where am I in that prodigal story? Is that me in the pig slop, or is that me hovering in the doorway, huffing about how irresponsible my little bro is, right? Our parable today might be also one of those kinds of parables, one of those like both and all sorts of stories. Super weird good news with all the twists and the turns that the gospel of Jesus requires. Whenever I'm, I'm reading a super weird good news parable, I often lean on a commentator that I love named Robert Farrar Capen, who was a chef as much as he was a priest and a New York Times op-ed writer. And he, about this, he says, somewhere between verse two, which he summarizes as, what's this, you're fired. And verse eight, my beamish boy, you're a genius. I never thought I'd see a nickel from any of those accounts. The master of the steward has turned from an unforgiving bookkeeper to a happy-go-lucky celebrator of any new interest that comes along. So we see this little spark, this little weird thing that is happening in this story with all these kind of unsympathetic characters that bewilder us. To, to read stories like this or to hear the gospel is to like achieve bewilderment. That's the term of a, this professor, uh, Alan Levinowitz. He says that we are trying to achieve bewilderment. <laughs> bewilderment is like precisely what most of us are trying to avoid at all costs. It's probably what many of you think that you're paying me to preach us out of together, right? But this professor uses bewilderment as his guide of teaching, as, as part of his pedagogy. He says, in there, in the space created by uncertainty and ambiguity, learning can begin. Because that space is humble, it's open, it's flexible. Says so my students discover that I'm right there in it with them. I don't have the answers either, and we work together, we think things through, and in any good class we emerge changed, not validated. In the absence of bewilderment, we become like tyrants. Inflexible, certain, overconfident, rigid, oppositional, binaries reign supreme. It's religion versus science, it's left versus right, it's us versus them, but not so in the space of bewilderment. So we don't come out on the other side with any like highly practical or repeatable processes with this. Do not start a Christian business with these practices, please. <laughs> the IRS will not like that. Friends, I also assure you that God does not enjoy dishonesty or injustice or lying. To say so would be to go against the law and the prophets. And Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus came to give life and to rescue us from domestication, to rewild this world. 
the frustration, in the bewilderment, in the inability to lean too hard or to make a law out of something that is just somehow good news is the point. Even in selfish and unsavory behavior, not us, just always the other person, even in selfish and unsavory behavior, there's somehow mysteriously and gracefully a witness to the unfair in the scandalous debt-canceling friend-making grace of God. Wild. The way God loves us, the way God forgives us, like this unjust manager is simultaneously so attractive, especially if it's less olive oil for us to pay, but it's also so utterly repellent to our sensibilities. We'd often just so much rather just swim around in our debt or hold others in our debtor's prison of our hearts. Or to, we'd rather go bankrupt than to forgive often and, or to consider just how truly liberating Jubilee could be. We're content to rehearse again and again just how bad for business mercy can be. Or that, you know, without accountability, this whole world crumbles. And that's true as much as it is, but that can also make us some pretty hardened people with some pretty hard hearts. It should make us uncomfortable that God's love has been shown to us in this way. Not a way that we would have thought of or come up with on our own. But especially shown to us in Jesus on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It's written in Scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Chief fool, right here. <laughs> Jews ask for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Amen? <laughs> the only reality that makes sense of our messy lives and our messy worlds is this good news. This Jesus on the cross, this Jesus raised from the dead. Not just good news, it is the best news that God has come to us. That God has come to be with us. God comes to us again and again in the mess. In the desperate Hail Marys and in the grindingly normal daily task of our lives. Jesus comes. Jesus comes to befriend us. Jesus comes to save us. Jesus comes to be with us. And so let us learn today just a little bit better how to be ones who
who can receive this bewildering Jesus and, and receive him as good news. You all pray with me. Jesus, thanks for hard and weird words. Thanks for coming up with things that we'd never come up with by ourselves. Um, thanks that your word doesn't return void, but um, bears fruit in season. Thanks for um, uh, community and neighbors to um, bumble along with and learn um, about this world of grace and mercy and forgiveness and, uh, and to do that together. And thanks that we're not doing that alone, that you're doing that with us. Thanks for your spirit that opens our eyes and ears and softens our hearts. Uh, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.